And now this afternoon, for the moments that remain, I'd call your attention to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. I'd like to read just a few verses out of this chapter. Beginning in verse 7. This is Moses now up in the mount. And while he's up in the mount, the people below are given over to idolatry, worship of the golden calf. So we read in verse 7 now, this is the Lord's word to Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God. And said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 14. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. It seems that the great men of the Bible who drew close to the Lord always bore the burden for the people that were committed to their care. This was undoubtedly due in part to their sense of spiritual realities. You wouldn't have to convince Moses that God was holy. He knew it. You wouldn't have to convince Moses that God's wrath was something that was very real. He knew that too. And he certainly knew the danger that God's wrath would bring to a people that had sinned against him. Moses had a very keen sense of spiritual truths and spiritual realities. Those truths were not simply academic abstractions to him. I think I've shared with you before that whenever I'm tempted to feel sorry for myself as a pastor, I always think on Moses. And here was a man who had incredible challenges. The Lord commissions him with bringing the people out of Egypt. He does do that. And yet throughout his time with those people, they are constantly wanting to go back to Egypt. 
and speak even of executing him to get him out of the way so they could return to Egypt. How short their memories were, forgetting that their children were targeted for destruction in Egypt. A very difficult task, pastorally speaking, that Moses faced. Now, what can be said of Moses and his burden for his people could also be said of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He knew that Christ was risen and glorified. He knew that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ. He knew this not merely from his understanding of Scripture, although the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, taught salvation by grace through faith. And Paul would eventually draw from those Old Testament scriptures to teach the gospel that he preached. But Paul knew salvation from his experience of God's grace in his own heart. Paul knew full well that he was not worthy of the least of God's blessings. He saw himself as the chief of sinners Yet he experienced God's saving grace so that the man who tried to stamp out the gospel became the greatest champion for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because Paul knew the reality of salvation and the truths of heaven and hell and the danger of the sinner who was on his way to hell, Paul, too, bore a heavy burden for the salvation of lost souls and especially for his own people after the flesh. I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He would write in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. That's the same spirit that's manifested by Moses when he intercedes for his people in the mount and he prays, yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and then you have that long dash, And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. He prays in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32. How I desire that we would begin to intercede for the lost like we've never done before. When we drift away from God and become too taken up with the things of this world, it becomes too easy to accept the plight of those around us who are on the road to everlasting destruction. And yet this passage that we've read this afternoon should encourage us to intercede for those that are lost. The passage speaks to us in such a way as to suggest that God will repent of the evil that his holiness demands upon those that sin against him. Verse 14 speaks to us of God repenting. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Other passages in Scripture speak in the same vein. 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. In Jeremiah's day, when that prophet was proclaiming the certain doom of the city of Jerusalem, he was apprehended and imprisoned. And when the elders considered among themselves what to do with Jeremiah, They remembered that in the days of Hezekiah, Micah had prophesied against the city, that Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death, 
They ask in Jeremiah 26, verse 19, Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Now, there is, to be sure, something very mysterious about these passages I've just now cited. They certainly raise questions in the minds of those who believe in the unalterable, eternal decrees of God, which as Calvinists we certainly do believe. The purpose behind God's revelation of his eternal decree, however, is not to turn us into a band of fatalists or hyper-Calvinists. Indeed, I think it would be safe to say that God goes so far out of his way to keep us from that kind of thinking that he clearly reveals himself to be someone who will respond to the earnest intercession of his people in such a way as to suggest that we can change the mind of God. He condescends, in other words, to our level of understanding in appearing that way. We know, of course, in an ultimate sense, God does not and cannot change his mind. But we're taught from these passages in the Bible that God doesn't want us to see everything in an ultimate sense. God is pleased to have us view some things from what you might call a practical sense. And in a practical manner of speaking, you could say, based on God's word, that if we will pray, then God will move. Indeed, God may be viewed as one who will change his mind about a sinner or about a church or even about a nation. And don't we need to be much engaged in intercession for our nation, especially at this time? So what I'd like to do for the moments that remain is to look at the example of Moses who teaches us to intercede for sinners. This is what we find him doing in this passage, don't we? He's interceding for sinners, for the Israelites, the ones that he brought up out of Egypt. He's praying for them. Let's think first of all then on the need for intercessors. And this need comes across very clearly in the words of verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down. For thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. I heard something very interesting some while back with regard to this passage on a recording by Al Martin, Reformed Baptist preacher. He points out that as the Lord complains about the sins of the people to Moses, God credits Moses with bringing the people out of Egypt. Do you see it in the verse we just read? Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God says to Moses. And a little further down in verse 11, Moses says to God, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt? It's as if if God would disown this people because of their corruption and their sin. He says to Moses, in a sense, they're not mine, they're yours. You brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
And Moses says in return, they are yours, Lord. You brought them out of the land of Egypt. But the point we must focus on just now is this. The people that corrupted themselves. They'd fallen into idolatry and immorality. They had made themselves odious before God. If you look at something that's corrupted, you're looking at something that's spoiled. You're looking at something that once was good, but now it's become useless. It might be something that once had flavor, but now you wouldn't dare eat it. And the text makes it plain that this was the condition of the Israelites, and it was a condition that they brought on themselves quickly, according to verse 8. Very frightening and very humbling to think how a people who had seen so much of God's power and God's blessing could become corrupt so quickly. And in this eighth verse, we find the explanation as to how they became corrupt. They became corrupt by turning aside out of the way which I commanded them. It would be easy for us, wouldn't it, thousands of years later, to look at these Israelites and marvel at them as if no such thing could ever happen to us. How is it, we ask, that the nation which saw the Red Sea parted, the nation that heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai, the nation that had been delivered from the land of Egypt and the house of bondage, could now Turn aside from the Lord. Well, it's not really something that's unique to that generation of Israelites, unfortunately. Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And in that same epistle, Paul reveals how he had to take issue with Peter himself, who had for a time failed to walk uprightly and departed from the truth of the gospel. Oh, it seems that the children of God, even the best of them, have a propensity toward corruption. And this is why we need to pray. We need to make intercession for ourselves constantly and for each other. We need to make intercession for others within the kingdom who corrupt themselves and bring themselves back into slavery and bondage through spiritual corruption. Back in Exodus 32, we note also about the Israelites that they are characterized as a stiff-necked people. In verse 9, this word stiff-necked is an interesting word in its original language. It's an agricultural term that describes a yoke which is hard to bear and the rebellious resistance of oxen to such a yoke. It, it simply means stubborn or obstinate, stiff-necked. And this is how the Lord himself characterizes the Israelites. They're hard to bear because of their obstinate resistance to the commandments of God. For such people as these, Moses prays and Moses prevails with God. He prevails for a people that have corrupted themselves and a people that are stiff-necked. 
He prevails in praying for a people that are in very real danger because of the way they have provoked the Lord's wrath. We can make the application from this example of Moses to sinners. Certainly sinners are corrupt, sinners are stiff-necked, sinners are obstinate in their rebellion, sinners are in danger of God's wrath. The wrath of God abides on them, according to John 3 and verse 36. Who will pray for them if we don't pray for them? This used to strike me quite some time ago. Oh, this was so long ago, but some of you would remember the Columbine high school shooting. It seemed like that was the event that triggered so many high school shootings ever since. Not long after that terrible tragedy, a man in our denomination, David DeCanio, he felt the Lord leading him to go out there to that very spot to see if he might uh, win some of these young people to the Lord. And he would often describe the obstinacy and the corruption of the young people that he attempted to minister to. And then he would raise a challenge when he sent out his emails. He would raise the question, who is praying for these people? Who will pray for them if we don't pray for them? How many Christ-rejecting sinners do you know that could be characterized as corrupt and stiff-necked? Who's praying for them? Who will pray for them if you don't pray for them? Think of the people within your own sphere of influence. How many do you suppose there are that pray for them? Oh, how we need to be interceding for those that nobody is praying over. God has revealed himself in this passage in such a way that we are taught that prayer, in a sense, in a condescending sense, can change his mind. Prayer can avert his wrath. What kind of praying can avert the wrath of God? What kind of praying can prevail with God when sinners deserve his wrath? Well, this leads to my next point of consideration from the passage, which is the practice of intercession. We've seen the need for intercession, for intercessors. Let's think for a moment on the practice of intercession itself. In Exodus 32, verse 11, we read that Moses besought the Lord. That word besought is an interesting word. It can mean literally to smooth the face of. You sometimes hear of a dispute between two people in which a third person is sent in to smooth things over, so to speak. Well, the word besought conveys that idea. God is angry with the Israelites. The Israelites are obstinate in their rebellion against God. Who will smooth things over? Moses will, or at least he'll attempt to. And this is what it means when it says, Moses besought the Lord. But how is it that things can be smoothed over through his intercession? There is a method to this intercession that we discover in Moses, a method or a practice that we would do well to adopt ourselves when we intercede for others. Look at what Moses does in verse 12. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, 
For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. You see what Moses is doing there? You see what method he's using in his intercession? He's saying, in essence, Lord, what is this going to do to your reputation if you just move upon these people with your wrath? How is this going to make you look? You're going to look as if you were unable to accomplish what you started. This is not going to be honoring to your name, Lord. You know, that's a plea that we can utilize when we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you have begun your purpose in redemption. We need to see thee move, lest the world say the gospel is powerless and God is unable to save sinners. The world is saying that, you know. It's tragically ironic that even some Christians say it or think it. They don't see the gospel as being the power of God to salvation. They see salvation as a mere human decision. And when that decision proves to be ineffective to change a man's life, the church resorts to other things, to psychology or behavior seminars, and so on and so forth. Oh, how we need to see God move the way we've seen him do in days gone by. We need to see the power of God that was manifested on the day of Pentecost and in the days of the Reformation and the Great Awakening. In those days, psychology and seminars weren't needed. Men were convicted of their sins and they cried to God for mercy and they made their way to Christ. So an interesting article a little while ago On the topic of psychology, this was an article from Table Talk magazine, and uh, the title of the article was, Was Martin Luther Insane? There were some that thought he was, interestingly enough. Anyway, the point I'm making now is that we have to be cognizant of the honor that comes to God's name. Oh, that God would bring honor to his name by manifesting his power anew and afresh. Let's make that our plea when we pray. Lord, establish your reputation in the earth. Don't let the heathen have cause to think that God is unable to save or that God is unable to carry his church forward or that God may not even exist. Oh, Lord, please move with power and might to eliminate that kind of thinking in the minds of Christ's rejectors. Christ teaches us to pray the same way Moses prays. Christ tells us in John chapter 14 and verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so we learn, don't we, from Christ's statement that we are make, to make the honor of God the basis for our intercession. Lord, save souls that your Son may be honored. Save my loved ones, Lord, that your Son may be honored. And along these same lines, we see how Moses pleads the promise of God in his intercession. 
Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. In pleading for God's honor, Moses pleads the promise that God himself had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Are there no promises for us to plead for our loved ones? What about the promise that God gives to us regarding our children? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That doesn't happen automatically. It happens when the members of your house also believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give them the grace, therefore, to believe. Do something powerful on their hearts. What about the word that Christ gives in Matthew 16 and verse 18? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a promise for us to plead. You may recall the story of David how David desired to build a house for God. And David was not allowed to build that house, but the Lord did send a message to him, telling him that God would establish his throne and make his throne a dynasty. And in reverence and awe, David then goes in to sit before the Lord, and he worships God. And then toward the end of his worship, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he speaks these words, which teach us so clearly how we are to plead the promises of God, when in verse 27 he says, And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house Establish it forever and do as thou hast said. Especially the last part of that verse. Boy, there's one you can go repeatedly before God's throne with. Lord, do as thou hast said. We see then very clear instructions and examples throughout the Bible in this matter of intercession. We're to make our case before God as it were when we intercede for his power and blessing, and we make our case by pleading for his honor and by pleading for him to do as he has said. Oh, that is good intercessory prayer. It remains for us to consider then finally the effect of intercession. We've seen the need for it. We've looked at the practice itself. Let's finish by considering the effect of intercession. And in verse 14 we read, The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. So God's wrath was averted. The people were delivered. You could say salvation was manifested and the people of God were enabled by God's grace to move forward. Oh, this is powerful intercession. And there is an emphasis in this passage that this deliverance came about through the intercession of Moses. You see what it says in verse 10. God says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them. 
God was truly bent on unleashing his wrath against the corrupt and stiff-necked people, and he actually says to Moses, don't intercede for them, don't plead for them, because if you do, then I won't be able to deal with them in my wrath and anger. We can certainly draw the truth from this passage that all we need do in order for souls to go their way to everlasting destruction is nothing. But if we intercede, then God gives grace. Should we not then be encouraged to pray and to pray continually that souls might be saved? Let's begin targeting souls that we know. Let's pray for them. Let's labor for them. Let's expect that God will be favorable to them. After all, it's Christ's honor that is at stake. It's Christ's work and Christ's promise that governs us in our praying. Moses averted God's wrath, and then he went on to gain much more. In chapter 33, we find him having to plead that the people would... Uh, uh, know God's presence among them. He pleads not only that the people might move forward to take the land, but that God himself would go with them. And if God would not go with them, then Moses has no desire for the people to move at all. And that's initially what Moses was facing, you know. If God says, go, I'll let you go. I, I, I won't unleash my wrath against the people, go, uh, take them into the land, but I'm not going with you. Well, that won't do in Moses' mind. Oh, Lord, you have to go with us. Uh, how else will it be known that we are thy people unless we have thy presence? This is what I desire in my life and for the families of this church and for our church. We must have God's power. We must have God's presence. If we can't go forward without God's presence, let's not go forward at all. We thank God that his wrath is averted, but we want his presence in our midst. We want his glory to fill the sanctuary. We want his presence to be a felt reality in our hearts, in our homes, and in our church. We want others to come to this house and find Christ here. And then we desire to take this gospel out to those who are in need that they may find Christ also. Begins with intercession. Sinners, you could say, are targeted for God's wrath. They rebelled against him. They're corrupt and they're stiff-necked. But God can be turned. And God in his grace will repent of the evil that is the sinners do if his people will pray. Let's pray for ourselves then, and let's pray for the lost, that God will not only turn his wrath from them, but that God will also turn their hearts to him for the honor and glory of Christ. Oh, how we need to be engaged in much prayer and intercession, especially at this time. You know, I, I haven't made much application, well, really any application, to an upcoming election. But boy, we need to make the application there. Lord, grant us a purging. Grant us a purging from representatives in office at every level uh, who go so far as to deny objective reality in rebellion against you. Bring honor to your name, O Lord, 
by purging these people out and replacing them with those that are better. So let's make this week a time of prayer. And let's close now in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do know that thou art God Almighty. And we knew, O Lord, we've known all along that thy decree is unalterable. And yet we also see passages in thy word that suggest to us that in a practical sense, the mind of God can be turned through the prayers of his people. Help us then, Lord, to be seeking thee in the simplicity of childlike faith during these days, knowing as we do that thou will hear and answer, and especially when we plead for the honor of thy name, which we do. O Lord, may we be much engaged in prayer, and may it please thee to hear and answer and do great and mighty things that we know not, for we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.